imagine what a breaking of the global supply chain would look like. Imagine, you know, if a nuclear weapon wipes out Shanghai mm -hmm. and also another nuclear weapon wipes out San Francisco. How far are we sit back technologically? 10 years? 100 years? I don't think we know. I don't mm -hmm. think we want to know. Welcome back to The Observation. I'm here in San Francisco, and I have not been back in San Francisco since 2018, and it's honestly such a treat to be back and spending time with people and meeting some new friends. And so today, actually, on the podcast, we have a new friend, but also a political scientist and the president of Bismarck Analysis, Samo Boria, and he's here today in a Ritz-Carlton. So we're, we're on the road, but thank you so much, Samo, for joining the podcast. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah. Um, before we dive into the podcast, uh, I want to shout out to our sponsors, Cash App. Cash App, when personal finance meets your funds and the stuff that matters, that's money, that's Cash App. Download the app, buy Bitcoin, not financial advice. All right, let's get into it. So, Samo, you're from Slovenia originally. Yes. Um, and we would love to just get a little bit of your background because you do risk analysis for some of the top founders and leaders in this country and around the world. Would you go that far to say? I think this country actually is a world leader. And very important things when it comes to investors or entrepreneurs. Yeah. You know, some of the largest names at least make their money in the United States and make their impact on the world in the United States. Um, if I were to compare, say, the European venture capital ecosystem, mm -hmm. it's just so much shallower than mm -hmm. what you'll find in the U.S. So, on myself, um, originally I studied physics before I reoriented quite strongly in my early 20s from physics, studying nature, to studying society, to studying economics, politics, um, because my view was, how does this happen? This yeah. like crazy phenomena of human society, of like billions of individuals working together or working cross purposes uh, to design all of these products around us, to terraform this planet intentionally or unintentionally. That seemed the most interesting phenomena in the universe to me, by far. More interesting than quarks mm. or uh, you know fusion or whatever else you'll have. Um, but I do think that kind of a grounding in natural sciences and STEM mm -hmm. really does help with rigorous thinking. Mm. So I wish more people made this cross in both directions, honestly, between hard sciences to social sciences and back again. And then uh, with regard to my company, mm -hmm. uh, Bismarck Analysis is a political risk consulting firm. Mm -hmm. We basically offer economic and political analysis and advice. Uh, some of our more interesting clients include people like uh, Peter Thiel uh, of PayPal and uh, Jan Tallinn of Skype and so on. Mm. So Peter Thiel, interesting. So, uh, you know, I saw, you know, obviously doing my research on you that you were talking a little bit of an immortal society. And um, that's interesting to me that it has not existed yet. Um, and I would love to know kind of what, what your thought is about that. And are you, are you hoping and wishing for that to happen? Mm. Well, it seems to me any sort of impact you want to make in the world is always bounded by the society you find yourself in. Mm -hmm. The famous poem of uh, you know Ozymandias finding the statue of the uh, you know ancient Egyptian pharaoh, yeah. and all that's left of this like glorious king is just the legs, mm. right? That's as true of ancient mathematicians, scientists, philosophers, religious leaders as it is of the pharaohs of the world, right? Mm. A lot of my friends who are very interested in mathematics believe it's a 
road to immortality, right? Because people will always remember your proof. Mm -hmm. We know historically that's not true. We've lost most of the writing from even classical civilizations. So ancient Greece, Rome, something like 94% of the authors who are known by name, by reference, right? Mm -hmm. In existing works, 94% of them, we have not even a fragment of writing preserved. Mm -hmm. So the idea that we sort of got the best from antiquity, that's false. We actually even still discover new math and science that we thought, say, ancient Greeks didn't have, which it turns out they did have. Interesting things like Heron's steam engine, the Antikythera mechanism, which is a simple computational device. We only found that because it was made of this um, precisely machined bronze, this marvelous device that allows you to calculate all sorts of interesting astronomical um, you know, events. We only found that on a shipwreck. Yeah. Had that sort of device been on land and you know, a temple or a marketplace in the Middle Ages, people would melt it down for bronze as soon as it broke. <laughs> so you know, I wonder, if our own society were to fail, how long would those CPUs last mm -hmm. before we would melt down all our electronics for the precious metals in them? Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. <laughs> so do you feel like we've just kind of, we, it's like two steps forward, then like one step back in terms of, and, and this is why you're pushed towards like immortality or, you know, an immortal society is, is so important, but because we, we haven't really progressed as far as we... I think we constantly backslide. We have this very, very cyclical approach where every time we reach a new peak, there's usually some sort of correction. Maybe it's centuries down the line, maybe it's thousands of years down the line. Um, and yes, on net, you can say that there's a trend towards progress, mm. but really, you know, why, what makes life meaningful mm. if you're not contributing to something greater than yourself? Because, you know, we're both mortal, or at least, you know, I think we are. I hope so. We're probably gonna, you know, <laughs> we're probably gonna die. Um, but it's something else to consider that your own society is mortal. Like, mm. Western civilization as we know it, or global civilization, this will come to an end. It's a historical inevitability. The only question is how. And I am fascinated by the question of, well, what are the forces that cause society to fail over and over again? I don't think it's global warming. I don't think it's climate change. I think it's actually something inherent to how humans organize ourselves. Hmm. There seem to be some like deep structural problems when we scale up society that cause societies to fail from the inside. There's this saying that no true great civilization is defeated from without if, until it's defeated from within. Yep. I think that's very, very true. Hmm. And we, as a species, we've not escaped this. So what is the current thing then? <laughs> what is the current thing that we are, what is our, you know, our big failure of society right now that is going to make us slide back then? I think that there is an argument to be made that we're actually stagnating even compared to the 1970s. Mm -hmm. These are points many people who uh, favor the acceleration of technological development, um, these are points that many of those people make, right? They point mm -hmm. out that, you know, if you, we look at this hotel room and we subtract all the screens, right, uh, either the TVs or the computers or the phones, this room kind of looks the same as it would have in the 1970s. And that's remarkable, right? That wouldn't be yeah. true in 1920, right? You would have had a massive change between 1920 and 1970. Yeah. Outside, and even when it comes to our electronics, our phones are basically the same as they were 10 years ago. I've been thinking this. I've been like, <laughs> why, is, why is this? Why is mm -hmm. this? Um, I would say that we've sort of 
given up on the manufacture of physical stuff. For now, we are still open to creating new information products, be it, you know, let's say crypto, like new financial instruments there, or be it artificial intelligence, which is just another way of trying to deliver on the promise that software is going to eat the world and all of that. But I wonder whether even in that domain, we aren't slowly rendering one thing after the other too disruptive, too dangerous, too socially irresponsible, et cetera, et cetera, locking down all possibilities of growth. Mm -hmm. And this then leads me to answer your original question. If I had to make a guess, and I have to emphasize this is just an educated guess, I would say that our desire is for an unchanging society. But our society, it's not like ancient Egypt, okay? We're not a society in homeostasis with our environment. Mm. We're not a society where things can stay the same for a thousand years and they're basically stable. We are the flywheel of societies. This whole thing, once it stops spinning, has to come crashing down because mm. we have embedded growth obligations in all our institutions, be they government, education, housing, etc., etc. right? There's a reason that we have these ballooning costs of housing, of medicine, of education. The only reason these haven't sort of like crushed us, socioeconomically speaking, is because we slightly outgrow them all the time, right? We would have to do education, housing, uh, medicine very, very differently if we were to sustain the kind of social organization we have. And more fundamentally, if you have a pretense of democracy, or at least material redistribution in the name of democracy, mm -hmm. you have to have a growing pie. Mm -hmm. As soon as the pie is not growing, this is not a positive sum game, it becomes a zero sum game. Everyone's talking about polarization as if it is a problem of information policy, you know, you just change the owner of Twitter, or, you know, we bully Zuckerberg enough until he fixes Facebook and then we're no longer polarized. Well, no, if the cake isn't growing, the most natural and rational thing for a citizen to do is to polarize themselves with 50% to go against the other 50%, beat them up and take their metaphorical lunch money, right? That's what democracy incentivizes. Mm. And look, we, we love democracy as a civilization, as a principle, we've committed to it. Yeah. But uh, we committed to it in a time of industrial growth. So if we stop the growth, maybe we're just in for some very nasty political fights. And you know, that could be the kind of thing that destroys a civilization, right? Especially with like, yeah. if it came to something like a serious new global war, for example, mm. right? Let's say America stops growing, China stops growing. They more and more blame each other for each other's problems, right? We wouldn't know anything about that, right? Mm. Blaming the Russians or the Chinese for American problems. I think that's traditional. Yeah. Um, and they're doing the same thing, right? How does Putin excuse all the failures of the Russian system? Well, it's, it's NATO, you see, right? Mm. And in China, I guarantee you, they're excusing the lack of growth on America's sanctions. It doesn't, America's sanctions had an impact, but the real yeah. utility is that there's a foreign scapegoat, a foreign enemy. Yeah. And uh, if that goes out of hand, you could really have like a devastating crack in global logistics, right? Mm. We all saw sort of the, some of the energy price hikes in Europe from a very regional yeah. war, the war between Ukraine and Russia. Yeah. Imagine what a breaking of the global supply chain would look like. Imagine, you know, if a nuclear weapon wipes out Shanghai mm. and also another nuclear weapon 
wipes out San Francisco, how far we sit back technologically? 10 years? 100 years? I don't think we know. I don't think we want to know. God, that's scary. That's scary. <laughs> well, you, you, and you asked about the but, end but of I our do, civilization. There I are do. no happy We're, answers. We, we, went, we went too fast, but it is interesting. I mean, even today in the news, we have Gary Gensler coming out and you know um, coming after Kraken. I know this is more crypto specific, but we're talking mm. about keeping uh, innovation and, and the U.S. as a global superpower. And you know, it's interesting to see that. The U.S. seems like it kind of hates crypto and in and, and growing and, and well at least G Gensler Gary Gensler hates maybe crypto and came after Kraken. So you know, but then you have China over here and just keeps iterating. Um, and I'm kind of interested to know what you think about that. I think the United States has to accept some amount of cultural and political disruption yeah. for it to continue to innovate. Mm -hmm. And I think the appetite or the taste or the political tolerance of such disruption is shrinking much too fast. So mm -hmm. I think crypto has been a very productive experiment for the United States so far. Um, arguably it's not really done anything to weaken the dollar as such. Uh, there's a lot of ways in which it's brought economic success to the United States, I think it would be in the enlightened self-interest of the United States to allow this new form of finance to continue. Mm. But will the U.S. actually pursue a broad-minded national interest? Um, I think that's a very different question. And I think that there are always more specific interests that benefit from keeping the entrenched form of finance intact. I think my, my view on crypto is that crypto is one of the few checks on the corruption of normal finance. Let's consider, you know, the most recent blow up in crypto that was, you know, significant. I think it was the SBF debacle. Yeah, FTX, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, Sam Bankman Fried was a major uh, donor of many politicians. Mm -hmm. um, leaning Democratic Party, but had some Republican yeah. politicians about on Yeah, 80 in terms of government. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Both complicit, one side much more so. Yeah. Um, in a way, he was behaving much more as a classical American financial elite. Mm -hmm. It was actually unusual to donate that much politically. Yeah. Crypto is shockingly political. If you're going to have like an experimental financial class of people making a lot of money, making fortunes, losing fortunes, well, first off, you don't want them to defraud anyone. <laughs> but secondly, it's kind of neat that they're mostly apolitical. Like mm -hmm. the U.S. should like count its blessings. There are few countries where you could have an entire new industri financial industry yeah, totally. emerge and just not have its fingers in all the political stuff. Mm -hmm. So it is interesting a little bit, I guess, on the environmental side. It gets it gets political on some on some notes, but it is interesting in terms of you. You made a point earlier talking about how you know governments and institutions and there's less mm -hmm. less trust, or I don't know if you said that specifically, but it does feel like there people are some somewhat waking up to uh, why things are the way they are and it feels like a movement towards the individual um, do you feel like that is something that is happening to like the sovereign person compared mm -hmm. to communities and things that we used to have that used to people used to identify with the, like we are in this uh, like we're in this small little group that we hang out with or we go to this like you know club or we have a kid that's in this like soccer league people don't really have these communities as much as as they used to do maybe 20, 30 years ago. Um. I think there's definitely been a move towards atomization. Mm. Now, 
atomization is this term used to suggest that there's a breakdown of communal bonds over time. It remains to be seen whether we are simply going to be isolated or whether we are going to become much more enlightened, you know, self-authoring individuals. Mm. I would argue that atomization and individuation are two separate processes. Individuation is as much a matter of personal education, by which I don't mean, you know, I don't mean degrees, I don't mean credentialing, I mean the ability to make sense of the world for yourself. We rely on communities for companionship, for economic opportunities, but also for the tribes to think for us. We do have online communities that have sprung up that arguably are often just sharing with each other general moods and ideas about how the world works, right? You have all these like online communities of various types. Um, you know, I could, I could name many online phenomena, right? Like, you yeah. know, the media really hates the incels, for example, yep. right? They're a, they're a community trying to make sense of their environment. Um, there are, you know, arguably social justice as such and all the movements associated with it, including trans rights, is an online first movement that then moved into the real physical world, mm -hmm. right? People incubated those on Tumblr yep. and so on. So uh, I would say that for now, our interpersonal social life has went from the material world to the digital world, right? Yeah. We've replaced local club with a favorite signal chat group, right? Yeah. Private DMs, right? Yep. It's all there right now. But we're still using, we're still thinking the same thoughts that our friends and our peers are thinking, right? Yeah. We're still doing group think. We are finding, yeah, finding connections online, which mm -hmm. is interesting too with AI springing up and people sort of creating these new identities of sorts that are a representation of maybe who they want to be seen as or maybe their, mm -hmm. their, their interests or hobbies or likes, but they're not actually themselves. Um, and potentially just, you know, a representation of, I mean, I guess we have always done that, right? I guess people mm -hmm. kind of represent themselves in whatever way and change their image and any way that they want to be rep to be perceived, but what do you think how how AI kind of comes in and plays a role in, into this? Well, <laughs> I think uh, currently our desires for artificial intelligence is that it is the painter that comes at court, and we expect the painter to draw us the most favorable portrait, mm. be it of society. So when the large language models of OpenAI and ChatGPT say, oh, as a large language model trained by OpenAI, I can't say anything derogatory about an individual group or whatever, right? When mm. it gives you the fake chatbot answer, yes. uh, that's it painting a favorable portrait of society. Mm. We don't want AI to organize all the knowledge in a way that gives us an accurate picture of the world. We want the AI to tell us what we want to hear very efficiently, right? So we don't have to hire a human to tell us what we want to hear very efficiently. And the same applies to what we want to see. Uh, a lot has been made of the AI filters, the beauty enhancing filters. Mm. Um, you know, I don't know whether your show uses any. I hope they'll make me look yeah, better. No, you look um, great, Samo. You, you don't need anything. You look great, no. No, no, no. We, we all need narcissistic supply, right? Yeah. <laughs> and that is what that is what the uh, AI will happily provide us. It will flatter us in text. It will flatter us in images, and it will sell us things much more efficiently than you and I could but then do ever we sell to. Do we lose ourselves then in that? The, and then it kind of goes back to the individual. Do we lose ourselves in some way if we are this other identity? It, it is an interesting. Like, who do we become then? I think it's a case where the image eats the person. I think one of the main reasons we have such high rates of 
mental illness, depression, is because the social facades we've constructed and now personally have to maintain online, right, mm -hmm. are exhausting. Mm -hmm. They demand our emotional labor. In, in a lifetime of constantly being recorded, a single outburst can destroy a career. A single not well-selected sentence, at least if you're in the chattering yeah. white-collar class, right? Yeah. It's a bit more open, let's say, and that's another virtue of the crypto community. People can be more eccentric here. Mm -hmm. And I actually wish the AI people were more eccentric. You know, this is one of the things I think, you know... <laughs> that's a take, I feel like. Oh, yeah, yeah. Weirdos <laughs> like Eliezer Yudkowsky, you know, they have many flaws, but they're, they're correct about being weird and not mm -hmm. being corporate. Yeah. I trust the weirdo more than the corporate PR spokesman. So do I. <laughs> yeah. That's a tip for everyone out there. Okay, I'd love to go to the live player theory. Uh, we talked a little about it the other night, yeah. but I would love for you to, to share it on the pod. Right. Um, well, I wrote this essay um, outlining the difference between live players and dead players. It slightly is related to the topic of this individual education we described a while ago. Mm -hmm. As soon as you deeply understand your own environment, you process your own information, you can, on first principles, make new moves, things you have never seen anyone else do, things that no one in your reference class has done before. And if you're smart about it, these will actually be very adaptive to you. They'll be good for your environment. You will be able to creatively make new decisions versus if you adhere to conventions and you let others think for you, then you are playing off a script. You don't even know who's written this script. So the metaphor of the live versus dead player, well, let's imagine someone that is playing, be it a game of cards, chess, or a video game, and they're actually looking at the game and they're playing, and someone else is giving a memorized play. Hmm. Something they've, you know, decided how they're going to do in advance. No matter how good the scripted game is, eventually a live player beats a dead player. And I think in our society, the number of live players is very low. I think currently in the world, to define how many truly creative individuals there are of this type, I think it's something like 20,000 people, maybe 50,000 people. Mm -hmm. And you can recognize them. These are the individuals who might have three or four different extremely successful careers. Mm -hmm. uh, back when I wrote the essay, I you know, used Elon Musk as an example. Mm -hmm. uh, today, that's a boring example because everyone's like, oh, that's just Elon. Yeah. I'm like, no, 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 it's not just Elon, okay? <laughs> yeah. there are thousands of people like this, yeah. right? You have people who, um, and to give an older example, whatever you think of Arnold Schwarzenegger, isn't it incredible that someone can be, yeah. you know, a bodybuilding champion that knows how to pivot into acting successfully, breaks through with like this documentary, this weird, uh, you know, movie called Conan the Barbarian, and then pivot successfully into politics after marrying a Kennedy. Do you think that choice of spouse is accidental? I mean, I'm sure he married for love. Yeah. But we come on, isn't it, isn't it wonderful when, it's when love is so practical? It's amazing to become the governor of California and like, that, it's an amazing, it's an amazing achievement. It's an amazing achievement. Yeah. Is that, do you, but do you think that's like achievable for anyone? I think that's kind of a, a very rare thing for someone to, to ha be able to do that. Well, if everyone was a live player, then perhaps the highest honors would not be achievable for everyone. But I think everyone has the potential to individuate, to develop their own ability to think for themselves, perceive their environment, and become comfortable with calculated risk. Mm. And as soon as you start doing that, you'll make terrible mistakes. I mean, maybe for Elon, buying Twitter was a terrible mistake. Do you I'm, think it was a terrible mistake? I'm not gonna talk about that. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, um, 
the case is that on net, yeah. both individuals mm -hmm. and society as a whole benefits from this sort of uh, improvised, uh, virtuoso, live perspective. And we get m much less stability than you might think by adhering to convention. The most dangerous thing in the world is a whole society doing exactly what everyone else does. That seems stable because things remain the same, but it's extremely fragile. It means the whole society kind of can go off a cliff. But does that not what we get when we use things like ChatGPT? If we're if we're kind of using the same code over and over again, is that is mm. that and is that not the same result that we would be getting the same script, if you will? Well, I think first off, even before ChatGPT, most people were operating off of cultural scripts, right? They might have gotten their stereotype from a movie, right? How many people have a worldview? that is about as complicated as the Marvel Cinematic Universe, okay? They take it as the guidestone on morality, on action, etc. So mass media making us all, us all much more similar, that's nothing new. That's been with us for a century. Yeah. Maybe for several centuries if we take mass literacy to be the first form of this. Um, but for ChatGPT, well, let's put it this way. I think that the upside of it is I think ChatGPT will make original thinkers stand out so much more. Hmm. I find myself basically yeah. unconcerned that this technology could ever replicate, you know, my style of writing yeah. because I just write new things. Yeah. And I'm not unique in this regard, right? But formulaic uh, writers, sort of the middle, I think they actually have something to worry about. So ChatGPT, I think, in the best case might help us figure out okay, what is it that among these 7 billion people on this planet, someone has already written well? The analogy between the AI approach and older methods like search is a pretty deep one. I think whenever you ask ChatGPT something, if it works well, it gives you a superhuman search of everything humans have written online ever and gets, gives you the best answer. That's actually a pretty useful tool, even if you're a live player. Would it bother you, though, if someone typed in, you know, please compose an 800-word op-ed that sounds like Samo Borya? Would you be upset that no. someone would be, you know, obviously, and try to, in the style of, would that bother you at all? I think it would just mean I would have to learn more styles of writing. <laughs> that's a good challenge, yeah. no? Yeah, no, that's good. Okay, let's talk about Bismarck analysis. And I would like to kind of go into a little bit of what you're providing your clients. Um, you know, and it's like weekly, it's weekly analysis that you're... Right, right. Um, my company does um, basically close consulting, often obviously, you know, out there in uh, NDA land when I can't necessarily yeah. talk about it, but uh, trying to solve concrete problems their clients might have. Uh, sometimes we've done research on people's competitors. Sometimes we've done analyses of entire industries. Other times still we've identified, say, key decision makers in a government, right? One of our clients um, once asked us to just analyze Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund <laughs> and find all the key stakeholders and decision makers beyond, of course, like, you know, of course, Prince MBS is, he's his own matter, but who are the other people? Who matters? Who doesn't matter, right? 
And uh, honestly, I love that. To me, that's applied political science. That's, to me, applied economics. Um, if you can't figure out who's in charge, can you really say you understand politics? I don't think you can, yeah. right? But a product that maybe your audience would be interested in subscribing to is the Bismarck Brief. Mm. And in fact, some of our much more highly paying clients also do read that. It is a weekly, in-depth, four to 5,000 word analysis of either a key powerful individual and all of the organizations that they have, uh, an industry, a technology, or a company, sometimes also governments. To give some examples, uh, we just did a brief last week on the Sulzberger family, mm. who are the family that owns the New York Times. Yeah. Many people don't know the New York Times is a family business. <laughs> they actually have a brilliant setup where uh, you know people, young people from the family work at other newspapers and then around the age 30, they're brought in. Mm. That way there's no appearance of nepotism. Mm. Uh, you know, you have someone that's an impeccably credentialed journalist and you know, suddenly they're the publisher. Isn't that funny? <laughs> um, and you know, maybe the newspaper actually works better than that. They make the argument that if they didn't keep control of the New York Times, if it was up to shareholders, then really, you know, uh, you know, the 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 opinion, the the editorial board could be bought, right? Uh, so that's like a fun yeah, analysis. That is interesting. Right? Love that, yeah. And it feels strategically relevant to people because it really is. You need to understand like yeah. who is in charge at the New York Times or a different brief we wrote on the progress of photovoltaic technology and how in a very important sense, California and Germany have given huge subsidies to green energy. And these subsidies have given huge profits to China, hmm. right? They were yeah. presumably assuming that German companies, Californian companies, American companies yeah. would be producing the solar cells and the windmills and so on. But say China completely cornered uh, this market on photovoltaics. And you know, one of the best things about it is we, because it's a relatively pricey product, we only have a few hundred subscribers. When someone emails in a correction, I love how well educated the typical subscriber is to the brief. I actually personally still read all of those, right? Right. I have people who handle like a lot of the other stuff, but I personally You're like I still want to die with someone. No, I want to know when, yeah. my, when my analysts get it wrong. Yeah. I personally like review every brief. I like often do some of the research on them. So for me, it's a fun experience to think about the world like really systematically, kind of make a world map of everything that matters. Yeah, amazing. Definitely sign up. And what's the what's the link? Drop the links. We'll probably put this at the end as well. Yeah, yeah. it's a brief.bismarckanalysis.com. Amazing. Okay, now I just want to get your overall, on a lighter note, take on San Francisco tech culture because I am here for the first time in five years and I'm, I'm just taking it all in, you know? Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting. They say that it's like five to one men to women in this city, which I think is pretty shocking. Um, and they've also said that the city's dropped, the population's dropped by like 20% and moved to, uh, since the pandemic, and moved mm -hmm. to Austin. Florida, different places like that. Um, it is, it does seem like a tough dating scene out here. And what has happened to Silicon Valley? What has happened to SF? What are you, what are your thoughts on it? Because people do talk about this daily on Twitter and we need answers from a local. Well, tough for women or tough for men? Tough what are for, well, it must be great for men, tough for women. I mean, I mean 
great for women. It must be tough for men. I don't know. Which I actually, I actually think women have a uh, difficult time here as well. I think it's sort of the case that you know a lot of the men in San Francisco don't necessarily appreciate how much value providing community and taking care of the social environment provides. Mm. The social scene, the party scene is very smart. I love the city for that reason. You can go to any party and there's going to be someone that's a brilliant mathematician, mm. right? And that's that's wonderful. That's great to have. But you know, I wish I would meet more brilliant musicians. That's what I try to cultivate in, mm. in my friend group as well. I wish that more people read literature. Mm. And I really wish that more people had a deeper interest in other topics, right? Yeah. So that's like on the intellectual end. But on the social end, you know, you need to maintain a friend group, okay? Yeah. Having like a sad beanbag room with, you know, a basic playlist and some non-alcoholic kombuchas, that just doesn't cut it. That's yeah. like a boring party. <laughs> and I think if, if guys in San Francisco want to date well, I think they need to throw better parties. The parties have to be more tasteful. They have to dress well. Like maybe they shouldn't wear a hoodie. Maybe they should discover <laughs> new fashion. And uh, if they did that, the city would be so pleasant. I think the gender imbalance would fix itself. Yeah. Do you think the LA women and the New York women, they don't want uh, you know a guy making three or four hundred K a year easy. Mm. They do. They just want him to be pleasant to be around, to be uh, socially intelligent because women understand something that men miss mm. is that so many of the best opportunities in life, they won't just come out of being a brilliant mathematician. They'll come out of having the network of people that recognizes you as a brilliant mathematician, mm. right? Interesting. So even if you want to just be a mathematician, having like a socially intelligent girlfriend or being socially intelligent will do much better things you. For need you. The you, you need, need the network. You need the network. You need the network. So do you have any like amazing SF stories, parties, things that you've enjoyed out here or weird moments in your, your career to send it off? I feel the weirdest moment ever was when I was invited to a um, party at this, this random political gathering. I look around the room, uh, someone's like organized this gathering and they're just serving pizza and everyone in the room is like worth, except for me, worth over a hundred million. And then at the end they like Venmo the host for the pizza. And I was like, something has gone deeply wrong. You guys are so aspy, you don't understand generosity. Oh and I've made a personal point of, you know, this is maybe my European side rather than my American side. Yeah. You know, often when friends want to split, I'm just like, no, 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 I'm paying. Yeah. It, yeah. I just don't yeah. care about the money. Yeah. I don't want to live in uh, that transactional an environment. I, I, don't like it. I don't like it either. It makes me super uncomfortable. I'm not a fan of it. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I also do find... How are you going to politically conspire if you can't conspire over giving people some pizza? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, Samo, thank you so much for joining the observation on the road. It has been my honor to host you. So thank you so much for coming on the show. It's a lovely conversation. Thank right. you. Thanks. All right. We'll be back next time. Good luck and Godspeed. You don't